Hey everybody, welcome to the big podcast. We'll be uh, jumping into metamorphosis here in a minute, but before we do, I want to get in and talk about some of the really cool stuff that's happening right now in our little corner of the world. The first thing being that, and most importantly, that on top of now being on Apple Podcasts, which makes it really easy to find us, you can also now find us on Stitcher. It's a really cool, easy app, one that I had been using for a while to catch all my favorite podcasts and listen to them. It's real easy to use. Just download the app. Once you uh, get into Stitcher, then you can set up a whole bunch of your favorite podcasts to listen to all in one place. Makes it easier than having to download them off of SoundCloud. As much as we love using them, of course, sometimes just using a podcatcher to listen to your five or six favorite podcasts every week is just the way to do it. So just get on there and search for The Brothers Trek About. Same thing on Apple Podcasts. We're also on there. So we're pretty excited to be part of those. So look us up, find us, subscribe, do all those fun things. We're still also on YouTube. The weeks that the video actually works, sometimes it doesn't work because, I don't know, there's something about either my internet or, or Google's taking of the film and the audio is out of sync or something horrible happens. Who knows? But anyway, most of the time we're on YouTube every week. So uh, you can find us there. And, of course, you can always find us on Facebook. We're still over there. Lots of fun things happening over there. We'll always let you know when the new content drops. Plus, from time to time, I'll drop a little article in there talking about things that, of course, are important to those of us who are Trek fans. Uh, you know, new articles about Discovery or the new Picard show or if somebody comes up with some really cool thing about Next Generation that we've never thought of, I'll uh, throw that up on there, too. So, yeah, look us up on Facebook, too, and... Let us know you're following us and all those exciting things. So, with that said, let's watch something metamorphosize. episode that says all the right things plays all the right notes has just the like exact right amount of drama and yet you don't have a lot to say about it it's kind of how i'm feeling about this week we'll see what happens but we're talking this week about metamorphosis here on the brothers trek about my name is matt as always and coming to you from houston is my brother ken say hello ken Hailing frequencies are open. There we go. Well, like I said, Metamorphosis is the name of the episode this week that we're going to be hitting. And it's a great episode. You know, I, I keep reading all this stuff about how season two is the pinnacle of Star Trek, the original series. And yet I have failed to see them, which is weird. We'll get to a muck time. And I've seen a muck time. But I feel much more comfortable about the end of season one with, you know, Space Seed and Shore Leave and some of those episodes than I do so far, either of the two that we've watched in season two. But we're there, we're watching them, and I'm enjoying them, and that's all that matters. So uh, things are starting to groove here in season two. As I've said, we have hit the point where they had saved up episodes from the break. They've already written them. We're just now getting into shooting them. So that's kind of where we're at. 
So during the break, Gene Kuhn, under pressure from NBC, this is something we did not talk about, had to write out an interracial love story that occurred during the alternative factor. But now that we're into season two, NBC's kind of like along for the ride, seeing the interesting takes that we can take on social commentary using Star Trek. He comes up with a, a different idea to tell the same story. And that's where we begin, of course, with this episode. Metamorphosis. The script only went under a couple of drafts, and they were all Gene Coons. Not surprisingly, uh, the man was a writing machine, as we have also discussed before. This is just another fine example of Gene Kuhn cranking out another fine episode in a very short amount of time. So, of course, this is the first episode where we see the use of the uh, universal translator. Here it becomes an important story point. And it's a gadget that they've always wanted to use since the beginning because they always hated the way... You sort of had to suspend your disbelief that Klingon spoke English and Romulan spoke English and uh, everybody in the galaxy all seemed to know English. So their idea was that there was a universal translator in the enterprise that kept everybody understanding what everybody else was saying. It's kind of like Doctor Who's use of the TARDIS, right? It's sort of this telepathic thing that helps everybody understand each other. The problem is, is that, of course, they always sent a lot of stuff off to, as we've uh, talked before, to uh, the DeForest Research Group, who tried to get the science right as much as they could. But even the DeForest Research Group admitted that sometimes you have to put the drama first before you get into all of the uh, correct scientific stuff in Star Trek. Pete Sloman at DeForest Research said this, my biggest gripe about any science-fixion gadget on the entire show is the Universal Translator. It's just impossible. There is no way to explain it unless the device is telepathic. It just doesn't work. And yet in this episode, we're having, well, you know, there are lots of uh, commonalities between all languages. There are only so many ways that a language could be used. DeForest Research said, uh, well, that's a bunch of bunk, but you can go ahead and use it anyway. <laughs> so that was fun. Uh, well, what's your take on the Universal Translator? Just a good uh, story trope for us to use uh, to make sure everybody speaks English? Well, so by the time you get a movie budget, as in Star Trek The Motion Picture, you can hire a linguist to invent the Klingon language. Mm -hmm. And once you've done that, you can use subtitles. And then, you know, you can have the Klingon speak English when they're, when it's useful and have them speak Klingon when you want that to happen. And if, if you presumably had those kind of crazy budgets all the time, you could have a Romulan language and a Cardassian language and a Ferengi language and right. uh, an Orion language. But one, we certainly don't have that kind of budget in the original series. We and, barely have enough budget to make the episode, let alone yeah. have somebody create a whole new language. Well, I'm also afraid that the uh, the subtitles would break the bank. <laughs> <laughs> Great point. So it becomes necessary to just have everyone speak English and to kind of you know hand wave that away with something like sufficiently advanced technology. Uh huh. It's, it's, it's necessary for us to tell our stories and not to either have cumbersome language problems that have to be a part of the story 
And you know, with, with the crew, I mean, the crew all speaks English, maybe. I mean, in a certain way, English is already like a kind of a universal language. Lots mm -hmm. of people speak it, uh, especially as a second language. It is the clearly the number one second language. And you know, some some of the characters, Chekhov, for example, certainly seem to be using it as a second language. Well, the USA won. We know this by other things that have been stated in the series. <laughs> So now we have, uh, you know, even now in Game of Thrones, we have like Dothraki that's been created and, you yeah. know, all these other languages that are now, they've taken the lead from the Klingon and like, oh, well, if fans are going to learn this, let's, we can sell the book, we can sell the audio book, how to speak it, it's going to be amazing. Just wait. People translate Shakespeare into Dothraki. <laughs> that's right, exactly. <laughs> I believe right behind you is uh, some Shakespeare in Klingon. No, no, I have no. There's no Klingon. I've got uh, mine's the the Star Wars, the Star Wars Shakespeare books, of <laughs> okay. course. Well, so, someone got me a, a Hamlet in Klingon. You know, in the, oh, the really? original Klingon. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure that was me. That sounds like a a, a me Christmas gift, definitely. In uh, in one of the early scripts, it wasn't Spock actually who goes down to the planet with McCoy and Kirk. But it's instead Scotty. One of the notes that DC Fontana gave to uh, Gene Kuhn was, hey, uh, Scotty's getting uh, zootsed a lot this season. There's a couple episodes coming up where he's going to get two more episodes in the next like four or five where he's going to get zootsed. So uh, can we find a way to not zoots him in this one? So instead they make it Spock. And I think it's more appropriate that we end up getting the triumvirate down on the planet. We right. get Spock and, you know, Bones and Kirk on the planet while we leave Scotty in charge of the ship. That makes much more sense. So we never do see Kirk on the ship. No, this is the, the first time that we see that. And not only that, but we don't even see the Enterprise until about 27 minutes into this episode. So that's crazy. Mm -hmm. Also in the original draft, uh, the shuttlecraft was named the Edison as opposed to the Galileo, but they ended up just changing it to the Galileo so that they could use the footage from Galileo 7 in this episode as opposed to having to create all new ones. You know, save it whenever they can. You know, and that's one of the neat things about today where that could be an editable part of CGI. So Ralph Siniski is back to direct another great episode of television on Star Trek. He was the one who cast Glenn Corbett as Zephram Cochran here. He was 37 at the time. He'd gained stardom by doing uh, Route 66. That was the biggest place uh, anyone would know him from back in the 60s. And uh, that's also where uh, Sineski had met him doing an episode of that show, too. So one of the problems, though, that they ran into, especially in regards to budget, was is that they were only given a budget of $2,500 to sort of cast the top-tier actor, you know, guest star on the show. And so all the rest of the money then had to go to your one-lined people and those folks, your, your, your extras and stuff that were in the episode. But luckily, because there weren't a lot of other one-lined, you know, extras, there weren't a lot of just extras except for the couple that were on the bridge, he had a little bit of extra money in this. So that was how he was able to also cast uh, Eleanor Donahue who was now 30 at this point in her career. Of course, you and I were talking just beforehand. She was best known for Father Knows Best. She played the uh, young teenage daughter in that one for, uh, believe it or not, 192 episodes. 
was how long Father's no, Father Knows Best was on the air. That's uh, quite a lot. She started when she was 10. The show kind of wrapped up when she was 16. She would then, of course, go on to even more famously and somewhat connected to Star Trek because of Mayberry. Uh, she went on to the Andy Griffith Show where she played Ellie Walker, the girlfriend of Andy during the 1960 and 61 season. That, that never really worked out. And part of it's because... So Eleanor Donahue says she wasn't funny. And so mm-hmm. the, ta- the table readings, you know, they'd be working on stuff and they'd be like Andy Griffith, who kind of was in charge of the show, would say, well, let's, let's try giving this line to, to Don, to Don Knotts. And Andy and, and Don, of course, had a tremendous chemistry, which yeah. Andy and Eleanor Donahue never really developed. It was one of the weak points of the idea that they're having a romance and they really have no chemistry. And they would they'd give the line to Don, and it would be hilarious. Yeah, and like surprise. in later interviews, you know, Eleanor Donahue would say, when I read it, it wasn't funny. And when Don read it, it was funny. So I lost a lot of my lines, but it made for a better show. But, you know, that's yeah. how she ends up getting written off after the first season. Oh, that's so funny. I did not know that story. So she was also at this point uh, had semi-retired. She had done another show in 65, 66, uh, which didn't really take off. So she decided like, hey, why don't I just do, I'm going to go home and have some kids. I got married. So she decided like if, if, if somebody asked me to do something like once or twice a year and it turns out to be really interesting, then, you know, it might come on for an episode or whatever. Right. So that was uh, how they brought her on to this one was just, she was like, I read it. The script was amazing. You know, it was something I felt like I could really do. It was a stretch. What the heck? Why not uh, go on and do some Star Trek? So mm-hmm. that's kind of fun. And of course, before we, we leave the career of Eleanor Donahue, of course, who played her mother in uh, Father Knows Best? Oh, that's right. Jane Wyatt. That's right. Who will be uh, <laughs> Spock's mother. <laughs> yeah, Spock's mother. Oh, my gosh. Why did I not make that connection? I'm so silly. Like in this book, there's even a picture of uh, the cover of TV Guide with Jane Wyatt and her on it. And it didn't even click with me. What was I thinking? <laughs> so glad you're here to back me up on that one. <laughs> so interestingly enough, this, this episode started filming on a half day. They had spent the morning finishing up Cat's Paw. In the afternoon, they went to lunch and then they came back. And then sure enough, they, they started with this episode. It was the, the first scenes outside the shuttlecraft where they first meet Cochran. And uh, then Spock is attacked by the electrical shock. Uh, he's the one who gets zootsed. So uh, that was, <laughs> that's a good time. We'll talk we'll definitely talk about that because I thought that was great. They used a lot of false perspective. The problem was that they started using the wider angle lens. So while it looked like they had the depth of a ton, the problem was is that up and down, they didn't have nearly as much space. So they had to, so depending on where they were, there were all these different shots. So for instance, in the shot where we first see Zephram Cochran in the cave, in the original versions of the uh, episodes, there's like a weird cliff overhang as if they're like somehow looking through a, a, a cliff face and seeing him like coming towards the camera. But the reason was is because they had to cover where the top of the drop started. Whereas once we get the remastered videos, then they just added the, the sky just back in it. and took it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so of course, why not? Yes. 
So as I mentioned earlier, uh, Eleanor Donahue was uh, looking for something that would stretch her a little bit, and this episode does, because it's not her typical teenage acting like she was used to on the other show. When, when you're a teenager and you just bring yourself to tears, you can sort of like, it can be about nothing and it's totally right. fine. So here's the scene where she has to like cry and, you know, really bad. And she started like really like sort of working herself into a lather, you know, to get herself to cry. And at one point Shatner like leans down, whispers in her and says, uh, you know, you don't have to put yourself through all this. You can just act a little bit. You don't really have to cry. And she uh, she then says, and he was absolutely right. You don't have to get yourself all into a th into a froth on stage. Perhaps you need to cry those tears, but on television, when you're doing so many different angles and they're coming at you from a different way, once you've uh, stepped into those waters, you know, then you're in it. There's sometimes there's no getting out of it. So for her, she that was a very important lesson that she learned on that set. Although her voice isn't the one that ends up as the companion. She was there to read on set with uh, William Shatner that day. So she said that was a day of a lot of fun. It was really fun reading with Bill. And she was really felt like that was a really cool scene. And she was glad she could help Shatner get there during those scenes. And as it happens, there is a story that comes out of that particular editing room. You know, Ralph Sinisky remembered that they were watching footage of that scene. Shatner pulls it off brilliantly. And there were two takes. And after the takes, Gene Kuhn in the screening room said, uh, you know, that's why we pay him the big money. <laughs> it's because of scenes like that. Uh, George Takai even said, you know, there was no one who, who could have done Kirk the way Bill did. His energy, his vitality, his passion, and his supreme self-confidence. That's not only Bill, but it's also Captain Kirk. So it's always fun. I love it when people talk awesome about Shatner. What we already know, having watched, you know, episode after episode. Another interesting tidbit of information here is that the planet where all the shots were shot the same direction, right? As you might imagine on a stage, even if you've only seen like a, a stage stage, like a playhouse stage or something, you know, you're only looking one way, right? right? So the first day that they shot, they shot shooting the same direction, but they put the shuttlecraft down and then using a couple of different like plants here and there or trees or whatever, and shooting it from certain angles, they make it look different. And then when they do the reverse, going the other way, or shooting, you know, Cochrane's home or whatever, they take out the shuttlecraft, they put in the, the house, and then they shoot all the scenes with different cam camera angles and different trees and rocks also in certain places as well. So cleverly used because it never, at no point, even as, you know, with my crazy eye, at no point watching this episode did I think that's the same set. You know what I mean? They all looked so different. It really works. So, you know, when you're doing stuff on the cheap, there's a, a particular skill, a stagecraft skill of how do I take the same set and redress it a million ways for like $87 as opposed to either we're all going to green screen it or we're going to go to eight, 85 locations <laughs> or right. we're going to spend, you know, the, the GDP of Canada to make this one stage look like it's eight different places. Which they do brilliantly. You know, again, we've seen so many episodes now where you're just like, I mean, I know it's a set, but it never quite feels like a set. Which is interesting because I feel like the first season of, of Next Generation, it's the opposite. It feels uh -huh. so like a set. Right. See, you know, they're doing the same things, 
you know, they're putting a couple of rocks here. They're lighting the backgrounds, you know, really cool. But it still just feels so much like you're watching a, you know, like a, a bad play or something. Well, I wonder if some of that stagecraft was lost. Yeah, that could very well be. You know, that the yeah. people who are mocking up these stages for, for the original series had a particular skill because everyone had to do it. Right, you know, every TV show that that couldn't like go on location or that didn't have a back lot or whatever would have to take one room or one location and and just keep redressing it. So even on that that other show with Ellen Donahue, the uh, Andy Griffith show, you'd you'd have scenes in other people's houses. You'd be in the mayor's house, or you'd be in Floyd's house, or occasionally you'd be in Barney's little you know apartment or whatever and it's not like they built a new room they would take some part of andy's house or you know some some spare rooms that they would use for you know general uses and they'd mock them up and and you wouldn't go oh look it's it's that it, you know if you just move the chair over here and the desk over there it's andy's study <laughs> it, it, you never got that sense <laughs> lots of times that's what was going on yeah yeah, it's amazing. You know, it's, again, a mastery that perhaps we don't have today because we don't have to have it today. It's like, oh, well, we can just, you can just throw another couple hundred thousand dollars and shoot it somewhere right. else or build a different set. We don't have to do that anymore. Uh, but speaking of all of that, Zineski was talking about uh, Jerry Finnerman, who was the lighting guy, which we don't talk a lot about, but this is a perfect example of how perfect the trying to think of another cool adjective uh but how perfect you know the the planet looks you know we got this awesome purple sky you know in this episode and Siniski has this to say because back then the artist cinematography wasn't written down in books it was just taught from master to apprentice you know master to master how are we doing this you know blah blah and now people have taken all those ideas and either expanded on them or you know have just been like well I've seen a lot of movies I think I can do it or read a lot of books on the subject but then Finnerman himself says you know it's just a matter of reading the script which of course, as an actor, I, that's what I always say, actor, director, that's what you say. Everything is in the script that you need. So, you know, let, just start there. That's the basis of everything. He goes on, I'd read the script and then uh, come to the conclusion as to whether or not it was a love story or something about e evil or what the story was about. And I'd go from there. I'd pick those colors. And I'd never even ask the producers because they, they gave me the omnipotence to do whatever I wanted. Yeah, I'm sure to a certain degree, it would be like, you think I should use a, a yellow, pink, orange palette, or a, a green, yellow, blue palette. Maybe just looking like you're the lighting guy. I I don't know. I bet there'd be a lot of that. You know, the lighting guy just like I can yeah. do whatever I want. Exactly. You do what you feel is right. You go go for it. Another cool thing that Finnerman decided to do in this episode was he thought instead of like painting clouds on the backdrop or doing whatever we might normally do. Why don't we make some clouds happen? So before they ran every shot, every scene, they would float up using a fog machine clouds. So the clouds that you see in the sky are actually like real onset clouds, which again, something they would never do today. They'd be like, we can just add it in post. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> another. So this is another thing that Eleanor Donahue was talking about. This was on the uh, final day of shooting or half day. It's the scene where... 
the human and the companion had merged, and she goes and she she talks to uh, Cochrane at the end, right? Finnerman comes up to her and says, "Now look, I lit you perfectly for this scene, okay? If you just make sure that you sit here in this spot and don't move your head, because sometimes your head tends to bob, just so you know that. Uh, if you just stay here in this spot and don't move, you're gonna look gorgeous." She said, uh, it was really interesting because I sat there and I was thinking to myself, don't move. And while thinking that, I started to realize I was actually feeling what I was supposed to be feeling more. So this tip about, you know, staying still, which of course, you know, when you hear a lot about like great actors, you know, that's one of the things you hear, like their stillness. That's what they always say about like Pacino, not like late Pacino, but like Pacino and Godfather, right? They're always talking about how still he is and because how still he is and what he, you can see what's kind of like happening in his, in his brain. So she was saying that, you know, in the past, what she would do is she would kind of like whatever emotion she was trying to have, she was trying to show it. You know what I mean? She was moving her hands or bobbing her head or doing whatever she could to try and like emote that emotion out of her system. But she realized in this episode that the more quiet and still she was, the more she actually felt it and the more that you could read on her face what she was feeling. So interesting little acting tip for all you uh, folks out there. Elizabeth Rogers was the name of the actress who finally gave the final voiceover for the companion. She was brought on to uh, do it. Not much to say about that. Other than that, she comes back as Lieutenant Palmer in the uh, Doomsday Machine and the Way of Eden. And important information that we'll need, again, for the Doomsday Machine and the Way It'll of Eden when these things happen. It'll be on the test later. Exactly. Thanks. Uh, all right. Well, with that behind-the-scenes fascinating information done, let's get to it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So we start off with uh, some beautiful shots of the shuttlecraft. Again, I will encourage you to go to YouTube and look up the uh I think it's the Trekkie show or the Trekkie channel. Trekkie channel, that's what it is. Where they do the side-by-side -side comparisons of the original episodes uh, and the special editions, for lack of a better word to call them. And uh, interesting, the different takes that they do with some of the scenes. Some of them, it's just like, you know, there's more camera movement. Some of them, like, the it comes closer to the camera before it flies by. You know, another interesting thing that they do is that they change the color of the planets which actually changes something in this episode because in the flyby after the opening teaser, but in the flyby, they're flying by a brown planet in the original. And uh, which is why the planet is so like brown and dark and blah, 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 because they purposely did it. Either the special effects did it because of the way they addressed the set or the other way around. And then I think that in the new edition that it looks brown or green. I can't remember which way it looked. But it actually changed the color of the of the planet, which was interesting. Anyway, uh, they're in the shuttlecraft. We see that it's Kirk, Spock, Bones, and this uh, helper, this commissioner helper, who's been trying to basically... She's basically a diplomat. I don't know why they just didn't make her a diplomat. But she's basically trying to break up a, uh, a war that's been going on. And while she was there, she catches a disease. And she gets pissed. Because she's like, you know, this is Starfleet Medical's fault. They should have known to give me the uh, the vaccination for this. 
And both is like, well, you know, this isn't the kind of uh, disease that everybody gets. So uh, we don't often vaccinate for it because only like one in a billion people get it. This, of course, does not make her feel any better about it, right? Doc says, uh, hey, like, look, it's going to be fine. As long as we can get back to the Enterprise, everything's going to be a-okay. That should have set up right there. You should have known that going into this, she wasn't going to be a-okay. But anyway, the uh, Kirk says, that's going to be another four hours. We'll be fine. Thanks, Bones, and all for mounting Chekhov's gun. <laughs> we'll just put this right here. It'll look delightful. <laughs> exactly. You'll never see it coming. It's great. <laughs> So then Spock all of a sudden says, hey, uh, why don't you check your uh, automatic scanner there? Which is funny. I don't know why I did it in that voice either. That's not Spock. But uh, I, I've never heard of an automatic scanner. I don't know what that is, but that's fun. They check the scanner and Kirk's like, I don't know. I've never seen anything like that. So then they lower the, the windows, the screens, the somethings on the ship so you can see outside. And uh, there's this big like glowing blob that's outside the ship. And uh, they can't evade it. They try to go around it. It's matching them speed for speed. And then all of a sudden it hits them and surrounds them. The ship is off course and it's stuck in the blob. The commissioner at this point is like, insists on knowing uh, what's going on. And Kirk's like, well, you know as much as we do. Well, I insist that we make the rendezvous. Yeah. How would you like us to do that was my thought. Like, come on, commissioner. You're ridiculous. <laughs> And then uh, one more time, they set up the uh, ticking clock just before we go to commercial. Bone says, we have to get the commissioner back to the Enterprise. Her condition, Jim. And then she makes a final insistence like, yeah, we got to get back there to sickbay. And uh, Kirk says, well, sit back and enjoy the ride. <laughs> Credits. <laughs> and then we get those bongos. <laughs> Bongos. <laughs> yeah. So one of the big differences between the, the theme song between last year and this year is they've added bongos. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I just noticed the difference in the <laughs> lady singing. <laughs> um, I, I hear those bongos and I'm like, what kind of hippies took over the uh, the music room? Or I guess beatniks. They probably broke in and called everybody Herbert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's really jive to this out of space <laughs> tune, man. It's going to be great. So, of course, here we get no explanation for the use of shuttle the shuttlecraft, right? We don't know why they're on the shuttlecraft as opposed to the... You know, all they had to do was throw in a line to be like, well, meanwhile, we had like Dr. Spot or Dr. Scott, Dr. Scott, shoot. <laughs> we had a, we had Lieutenant Commander Scott, you know, keeping an eye on some supernova that was going in a couple of systems over, you know, it's like all they had to do is give us a line like that, right? That's what I'm thinking to myself uh, during the opening credits in the bongos when I realized that it must have been the next generation that caused nerds to get so picky about about everything that they watch you know because in the next generation we always get a, an explanation for everything right you know it's like oh yeah if we use the uh a medium p38 modulator on that thing uh it's gonna make flux capacitor work so much better 
You know, it's like because of the tachyon rays. Because <laughs> of the tachyon rays, exactly. So it's like even if it was gibberish, they still, you know. And so it's funny. You can't I just, use it again without tachyon rays. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You can't use the medium P thirty eight modulator without the uh, the tachyon rays. That's ridiculous. Because next generation always gave us a reason for everything, right? They were super smart in their writing. So I think that nerd culture now has uh, next generation to blame. That's just what I'm going to call it on. Um, no, excuse me. If you look at episode 32, back to it. The shuttlecraft is now uh, stuck on the planet. Communications are out. They can't get a hold of anybody. Kirk decides he's like, uh, all right. So uh, Spock, you and Bones, we're going to take you outside. Commissioner, I think that you should stay here. Well, how long am I supposed to stay inside, says the commissioner. I think she brought some of her like bratty teenager thing into this uh, part, <laughs> is what I think. Kirk's Captain like... Captain knows best. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody, please, on the internet, mock up that, please. That would be great. <laughs> I want that cover of TV Guide. So Kirk says, uh, that's a very good question. I wish that we had an answer. They get out. They start looking around at the uh, shuttlecraft. He sends Bones on his own to go look around. This is worse than Galileo 7. We got, now it's Bones who's running security on this uh, away team. <laughs> it's funny because, again, in a moment that's not very Next Generation-like, Kirk and Spock are looking at the, the stuff on the shuttlecraft that's not working and... Spock is like, well, it's what exactly you'd think it was. And Kirk goes, let me guess. Nothing's wrong, but nothing works. <laughs> I was like, yep, not next generation. They, again, would be saying a bunch of techno babble that uh, nobody understands. Bones reads the same readings on the planet as uh, the ionized bubble that they saw in space. He says, uh, it's like it's here on the planet. Then the most totally what the heck just happened moment of the episode, we hear a, hello! <laughs> we see a man. I mean, right? That just comes out of nowhere. Like, the last yeah. thing you're expecting is, like, some, some guy to magically appear and be like, hello! So uh, they see a man running toward him. He's, he's continuing to yell Hel hello a lot. Uh, we find out his name is Cochran, and he's been marooned here for a while. He doesn't seem to know anything about the Federation either, which is strange and suspicious. Kirk, too, is suspicious. Go ahead. The first thing that struck me about their meeting is that when the next generation meets Cochran, they're, they're awestruck. They're like, oh, but that statue at the Academy and, the, you know, this and the that. And the, oh, my goodness, it's Cochran. And this crew is kind of like, it kind of looks familiar. <laughs> Right? Yeah, exactly. Well, the thing is, is you're not expecting to land on a planet and see, you know, Zephram Cochran standing there. That'd be like you and me, like, you know, going to Florida. Next thing you know, you're like, geez, that guy looks a lot like Abraham Lincoln, you know? <laughs> like, weird. Guy does. Oh, like he's got the God, seven years ago. He's got the mole in the same place and everything. It's craziness. So Kirk, too, is suspicious. And says his name like he's suspicious too. He's like, I'm Captain Kirk. Cochran takes a look at the ship. Kirk says, uh, we were forced off our course. <laughs> How I wrote it. Very uh, Shatner-esque. I love it. Do you know anything about that? Cochran says he doesn't. 
Kirk still doesn't trust him, but uh, he sends Spock around the back with Cochran to talk about the propulsion system and how it works. This is the moment you were just saying where Kirk says, this guy looks familiar. And Bone says, you know, now that you mention it, he sure does. Cochran is Academy. <laughs> right, yes, exactly. Just like that statue. And all the universities and everything we hear about later and planets yeah. that are also named after Cochran. Can't remember what this guy looks like. So Cochran decides, hey, he's like, hey, I got a cut. I've got a hut back there <laughs> if you want to go back and take a look for look at it. You lady, you look like you need a shower. He basically says something like that. There's a shower there if you need to use it. And she's like, well, thanks for pointing out that I need a shower. That's really sweet of you. <laughs> Back at the hut, the commissioner gets her first set of symptoms. She's starting to feel uh, like it's getting hotter and hotter. We're running out of time, you know? Boom, boom, boom. And this is fun now. So if we look at this from like a script analysis, like I always like to, you know, our crew here is in a tough spot, right? Here we are. We're stuck on a planet where there doesn't seem to be like, you know, because a lot of times you're like, okay, well, they're stuck on the planet, but the Enterprise is probably going to find them. But in this case, like they don't have communications. The thing doesn't work. The The ship doesn't even know where they are. You know, they're totally like literally lost in space. Plus, we also got this ticking clock going on of this, you know, commissioner. How is she going to get well? Uh, surely she's going to survive this episode, but what's going to do it? And then we got this Cochran guy and his uh, bunch of antiques. So it's really like fun the way here we are. We're like, now we're at the moment where like all of the stuff starts to fall, right? We got our we got all our moments of action and everything else that ha happens here. Having watched this episode, I remembered Cochran and how he's you know 150 years old, and but I also was confusing it with another episode where they meet the founder of Vulcan philosophy and Abraham Lincoln. And like two other oh, guys. Oh yes, yes, yes. And so I, I wasn't quite clear which episode we were watching for a little bit, and I was wondering, and I don't don't remember the Eleanor Donahue character much at all, mm -hmm. right? So I was wondering, is she a MacGuffin? I mean, is, is she just here to provide the ticking clock? Right. Right, and then at the end, they get back to the Enterprise, and she's okay, and like, whatever. <laughs> or is she going to be super central to the plot in the way it turns out to be? She's Ilya and he's Commander Decker. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's good. And their choices are like really, really important into way, the way everything works out in the end. Mm -hmm. And so the, like, I'm wondering while I, while she's getting sicker, MacGuffin? Or going to turn out to be the pivotal linchpin of the episode. Right, yeah. Little did you know. It's funny you mentioned that one, uh, Surak. It was Surak, right? Yeah. It was Surak. Abe Lincoln and... Abe Lincoln and... Like Caesar, maybe, or something? Or Genghis Khan and... Yeah. And uh, Kalis, the unforgiv Unforgettable. Yeah they, yeah, they play the bad guys. Well, it's funny, so... One of those episodes that I've talked about where I'm like, yeah, I saw like a season three episode or something. That was one of the ones that I flipped through and I actually watched like, I don't know, a, a commercial segment of it. Like, you know, 
It was probably 10 minutes of that episode. So that's one of the ones that, again, I hadn't seen. I was like, what is this episode? What is happening? <laughs> like, how did they even get there? Like, I, I don't even know what's happening. It's craziness. So I'm excited to get to that one. That'll be fun. So then Spock's like looking out the front door and he sees the blob again. Um, so Kirk then goes to Cochran and says, what is it? Uh, I'm not requesting answers from you. I'm demanding them, he says. So we find out that Cochrane's ship was disabled. He was near death. And uh, the companion, as he calls it, saved him. But she didn't just save him. She made him younger and rejuvenated him. And now he's been living here for the last uh, 150 years. <laughs> and then they gave Bones this like great line, which again, giving it to anybody else would have sounded weird, but giving it to Bones is perfect. They're like, he's like, that's a pretty far out story. Love that. So we find out it is indeed Zephyrm Cochran, the discoverer of the space warp. But they also mentioned too that he's from Alpha Centauri. Hmm. Then the thing that brings us to commercial is you died 150 years ago. Dun, dun, dun. So we're back at it. We find out that uh, great. Great universities and planets have been named after him. And uh, we also find out that our patient is getting worse. Oh, no. He finds out that him and the companion had this sort of a symbiotic relationship. He can sort of telepathically talk to her. Kirk says, uh, well, maybe uh, you can find out what we're doing here. Cochran's like, well, I already know. And Kirk's like, then tell me. Uh, you're not going to like it. Well, I already don't like it. And then Cochran says, you're here to keep me company. And then the commissioner freaks out. Her fever's starting to make her crazy. She's like, no, no, that's disgusting. We're not animals, she says. Kirk then starts uh, trying to devise a plan. Maybe there's a way they can kill it, he thinks. Spock, again, as he has in other episodes, is like, are you, are you going to kill it? And Kirk says, only if it gets in our way. Shatner gives, his, uh, gives this great speech here, you know, because... Uh, uh, because he can. Cochran, because <laughs> he can, because he's awesome and amazing. And he's Kirk. Cochran basically asks, you know, uh, like, what's it like out there? What's it like out there in the galaxy? We're on a thousand planets and spreading out. We cross fantastic distances and everything's alive, Cochran. Life everywhere, we estimate. There are millions of planets with intelligent life. We haven't begun to map them. Interesting. How would you like to go to sleep for 150 years and wake up in a new world? It's all out there waiting for you. But we'll need your help to get away. You've got it. Again, uh, we see that Kirk, junior psychologist, has figured out the motivations of the person he's talking to. Uh -huh. When it's in the cat's paw, when he re oh, she's, she's like bedazzled by her own senses. I, I need to, what are the senses that are the most, you know, bedazzling? Okay, got it. You know, he starts kissing her, right? Yeah. In this case, he's like, here's the guy who invented the warp drive. What does he most want? Go to a thousand worlds. See what's progressed after inventing the, the, the warp. That would be so cool. 
And he knows it. That's what he offers. I mean, he dangles it in front of him. So Spock, in the meantime, has been working on the shuttlecraft when uh, the companion appears again, sort of reaches out and tries to touch it. But that doesn't go well because he's thrown against the shuttlecraft. And then the, uh, the shuttlecraft sparks and it shudders. Oh, no. And it's really great because Spock does one of those thrown against the thing and then like flies the other direction he like goes this way and then goes this way it's like a it's a it's just, tv trope of you know just, like they do it a lot in star trek yeah like and it kind of makes a little bit of sense on the ship where theoretically the ship can be rocking yeah it can be right? lurching yeah so first you know it goes this way and everyone and then it, it lurches this way as it gets hit by a torpedo or <coughs> encounter some plasma field or something but I, there unless you thought that the energy field was like slapping them around <laughs> yeah I exactly know, i don't know why he bounced this way and that way <laughs> i don't know either it was amazing back in the back in the hut kirk asks cochran if he can get the companion to possibly cure the commissioner he says that he'll try he then walks out into this little like grove area and he stands really still and he closes his eyes and he he thinks of the companion and it shows up and then the blob sort of like moves around cochran kirk and mccoy are walk, watching on they say uh is it like a pet no more like love mm, interesting so the companion refuses to help or can't help. I don't know which one it is. Or is the companion then jealous because there's another female that could take uh, Cochran's love? Bones finds Spock lying on the ground. He says the thing which I love. He goes, a most fascinating thing happened. <laughs> Apparently, the companion pardoned unto me a quaint, old-fashioned electrical shock of respectable voltage. <laughs> then Bones is like, it attacked you? And he's like, evidently. It's made up mostly of electricity. I just love, you know, like how simple and it's so funny. And, 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 and Nimoy's almost playing it for the laughs at that point. Right. But it's, it's really great. I love that. I love that little scene. Back in the room, now realizing that it's made up mostly of electricity, Kirk comes up with an idea of how they could possibly kill it. But Cochran is upset by it. He doesn't like the idea of them, like, possibly killing the companion. But Kirk's, you know, basically says, look, either we're stuck here forever or we figure out a way to get off the planet. And we're not getting off the planet if the companion is making us stay here. He reluctantly gives in and says, all right. He, just, he says, okay, I'll go call the companion. And on his way out the door, he stops for a moment and says, uh, what was it they used to call you? A Judas. And then he walks back out there. I was like, whoa, okay, that's a little heavy. Jeez. So Cochran calls the companion again. Kirk throws the switch. And then uh, the companion uh, tosses off Cochran and then goes after Kirk and Spock. Or does he, he, he might not even toss Cochran. Cochran may have gotten, you know, some of the shock and gotten knocked out maybe by what Kirk yeah. and Spock were doing. But uh, then the, the companion goes after Kirk and Spock and it goes from its normal like yellow shade to like a red shade. Apparently their device did not work and it attacks Kirk and Spock. 
and Bones yells it to stop. You're killing them as we go to commercial. After the commercial, we come back, and Cochran manages to uh, make it stop, and it turns green. Cochran and the companion become one again. And now at this point, we get uh, some of the comp- uh, some more of that captain's guilt that you know we've seen uh, a lot of. We talked about it in Menagerie, and I know Kirk's had one or two other examples of this, but you know he says, "How do you fight a thing like that? I've got a ship up there that I'm responsible for. Four lives down here." Bones is like, uh, well, it's not your fault. I'm in command, Bones. It is my fault. How do you fight a thing like that? How do you solve a problem like Maria? (laughs) Right. Or Maria the Blob. We're not sure which. So Bones comes back with, uh, hey, why don't you try a carrot instead of a stick? So here we are now. We are finally aboard the Enterprise. Scott gives his captain's log. They devise a plan to follow the uh, antimatter signature. Uhura gives us the hope by saying, you know, even if it got towed, it should leave an antimatter trace. And then Sulu picks up something. And then he loses it. But we have a new heading, and they decide to stay on that heading. Then Scott says, uh, you know, maybe it was a tractor beam or something. We don't know, but something got them. Back on the planet, we get we get this description of how the universal translator trader alert blah, 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 blah. the universal <laughs> translator works. Apparently, I, I need the work. universal translator today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he also tells us, which is also interesting, with an approximation of what the voice should sound like. So Cochran calls it back to him, uh, the the companion, and Kirk attempts to speak with the universal translator. The companion is found to be female. So that means that uh, the love could be uh, a real, because, you know, it's the 60s, and so we only had hetero love going on in the 60s. It couldn't have been any other way. Uh, well, she reiterates. And, and we had to ahead. make the electrical field a girl, right? Right. It yes, can't exactly. just be a lonely electrical field. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, of course, it can't be a boy electrical field. But the whole idea that an electrical field has to have a gender to begin with is kind of silly. Yes, exactly. It could just be an electrical field. She reiterates what we already know. And there we go, calling her she again. Although I guess I'll just continue to do so just because it makes it easier. She says about Cochrane, the man must continue. She basically goes on to tell them that the, re- the reason they've been there is so that they will keep the man company. Uh, they say, without you, the man will wither and no longer continue. Your, st- your strange degrading has stopped. You will continue, so the man will continue. Spock here takes a moment to stop the conversation, try and find out what, uh, more about its species, you know, where it's from, what its cosmetic makeup is. Kirk turns to him and says, this isn't a classroom. I'm trying to get us out of here. <laughs> and then Spock comes back with the very scientific, but this opportunity. <laughs> and Kirk's like, not now. <laughs> the companion continues uh, repeating, the man must continue, so you will continue. It is necessary. And she ends the conversation. This conversation is unnecessary, she says. The idea of male and female are universal constants. Apparently. I thought that they were like asexual beings here on Earth, you know? 
some that just sort of like duplicated on their own and then didn't Riker have sex with some sort of yeah, the asexual yeah. Yeah, yeah the gender neutral thing so I, I don't know if those are actually universal constants much like your point of like why can't it just be an energy field without a gender but anyway Cochran still doesn't get it he doesn't understand the idea of love between him and this creature bone says what a blind man can see it with a cane you're not a pet you're not a specimen kept in a cage. You're a lover. And Spock says, while I don't understand the emotion, the companion does love you. And then suddenly out of nowhere, Cochran gets totally disgusted. He's like, uh, it, 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 it used me. It fed off me, he says. <laughs> McCoy gives like the most charitable, like universal love answer ever. He's like, there's nothing disgusting about it. Just another life form, that's all. You get used to those things. Oh, that's nice. Obviously, at the time, they were talking about race. But if we were to put it in the context of nowadays, you know, this could be about, you know, different sexualities and all sorts of people loving each other. It's a very sweet, sweet thing here. Cochran, on the other hand, doesn't think so at all. He turns and says, you're just as bad as it is. Spock finds Cochran's reaction confusing. He says, uh... I don't understand. Has it not been both pleasing and beneficial for you? Cocker comes back with, is this what happens to men in the future? No decency, no morality. I'm not going to be fodder for some kind of inhuman monster, he says. Then we cut to the commissioner who's been in the side room listening to this all. And she says, I don't understand what's happening. He's been in love and he resents it. She says, I've been so good at my job. I've been so, you know, wrapped up in my job that I've never been in love. <sighs> what kind of life is that? Not to be loved. Back aboard the Enterprise, Sulu sees an asteroid belt. Scott tells him to make sure that all sensors are set to life forms. Kirk tries to explain love to the companion. This is just the scene I was talking about earlier between him and the companion. He will cease to exist, says Kirk. I'm not talking about his body. I'm talking about his spirit. Our species must have obstacles to survive. I feel like we've heard that before. Was that in the cage, maybe? Yeah, we, <laughs> I think we heard the last episode. Did we? The species well, must have... Oh, yeah, I guess so. The species we, must have... Yeah, you're right. We had the, uh, the, the flip side of it, I guess. The humans, you're all about resistance and curiosity and fighting the stuff and but yeah these yeah. are the, like the twin messages on the one hand we can't be contained we'll turn that phaser to annihilate and stand there and be like well <laughs> we're all gonna die <laughs> hope that's okay and, and at the same time it's like we can't have like a paradise because then we'll get bored and stupid yep you're right we keep seeing this message over and over again you're totally yeah. right he goes on to say, uh, you will always be separate, the two of you. You will always be apart from him. She said, if I can be human, will there be love? Kirk here trying to convince her basically that like they're two separate, you know, they're two separate beings. How can they ever be with each other? How can they be in love? She doesn't understand what love is. Kirk's trying to explain it. She doesn't get it. 
Spock comes out and says, uh, you know, what are you trying to do here? He's trying, and Kirk says, I'm trying to, you know, show her love. You can't expect her to react as a human, he says. The non-human saying this. It's the problem with you humans. You always think that we're going to, everyone's going to react the same way as you. Kirk smiles and looks at him and says, well, I tried. I don't, I don't know what else you want from me. Then from behind, uh, we hear her voice again. And suddenly walking out, it's the commissioner. She is up and walking. Commercial. Back at it. She's not sick at all. No, it's the companion and the commissioner. We are both here in one body, she says. Now, this is interesting because this was actually a note they got from Stan Robertson at NBC. Because NBC was saying like, uh, hey, you know, we're cool if you do this storyline, but we don't want the commissioner to die, as she did in the first draft. And then have the human or have the, the, the companion take over the human body. He's like, I'm really worried that... What's that? That's a, little, that's a little necro, right? Right. And he was like, he was worried about having like the religious aspects of the, the religious people coming at them for it. They've reanimated a corpse for love. <laughs> for love. So she moves towards Zephyrin, who suddenly takes a step back. The companion doesn't know how to take this. She says, is this loneliness? How did you bear it all this time? I've never frightened you. That's right, exactly. But uh, to touch the hand of a man, nothing is more important than right now. Let me feel these things. You beside me, the sun in my face, she says to Zephram. So at this point, uh, Zephram grabs her hand and uh, off they walk together. Kirk says, uh, Spock, get back, get back to the shuttlecraft and see if you can't get communications working. She turns to him and says, uh, oh, don't worry. Your ship will be working uh, just fine now. So aboard the Enterprise, they get the call from Kirk. Triangulate their position and head that way. And then Scott says, uh, what's happened, Captain? He says, uh, I can't tell you. It hasn't ended yet. <laughs> oh. So now uh, Cochrane is telling her of all the worlds out there. Uh, so much to see, he says. And while he's saying all of this, she takes off her headband and puts it over her eyes yeah. as if like seeing him the way that she's used to seeing him through the companion. Then she says to him, I can't go with you, Zephram. My life emanates from this place. If I leave, I will cease to exist. He says, you gave up everything to be human? She sort of half smiles. But even if you stay, he says, you will eventually die. She says, uh, you cared for me and you loved me. I never understood, but I do now. And then he kisses her. So this is fine. He's fine with it now that everything's like heteronormative, right? Can't be a separate species. Can't be, uh, 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 you know, it can't be an accidental male or something. No, now that everything's fine, it's a woman. He's totally cool with this. They find their way back to Kirk. He, uh, Kirk basically is like, well, we're getting ready to go. Let's, uh, let's, let's, let's move this thing along. Zephyrin says, uh, if she leaves, she'll die. And if I leave, she'll die of loneliness. Ergo. They decide to stay on the planet and be together. The last thing he says to Kirk is, uh, you know, don't tell them about me. 
Kirk's like, uh, don't you worry about that. Which is funny that he said that because I was thinking like, if people did find out Zephram Cochran was still alive, again, much like my example earlier of Abraham Lincoln, like everybody would want to talk to him. <laughs> what were you really thinking when you wrote the Gettysburg Address? How did you come up with the idea for Warp Signature? You know, tell us all everything we want to know. So if for nothing else, just to leave this poor guy alone. But you also have to wonder too, if like Kirk had to go and check on him every once in a while, like what if one of them died in a freak accident or something, you know, then they're stuck there alone and they die of loneliness. Like what happens? The other question I had, which is totally inappropriate, but I had to think it was, uh, how do you explain sex to somebody who's not been human before? Like, I promise you, this is how it works. I swear to God. <laughs> Anyway, the, the rest of the crew head back to the shuttlecraft and uh, on their way back to the Enterprise. And that ends this week's episode of Metamorphosis. So we've now had two episodes in two seasons, right? This side right. of Paradise and then this one, in which they experienced like a health rejuvenating ex that stop aging, eliminate disease, I think. What was it? Bones got his tonsils back or his appendix back or something like that, right? Yeah, right, yeah. It's like you travel the galaxy and you keep finding these rejuvenating effects. <laughs> right? Suddenly Kirk's 20 years old again. He just yeah. feel, you know, feels that way. Well, gee, I hope we don't get an episode in the future where suddenly they get debilitating old, debilitatingly oh, old. My, my goodness, <laughs> that would be terrible. That would be terrible. <laughs> They're like, uh, let's go back and find those rejuvenating things again. I think that would only, can only help us. Let's go get the spores again from the, the side of paradise or whatever. Mm -hmm. All right, a couple more things here to talk about. So it was funny because this episode was, was was came out long. Like they had more than the usual like 50 minutes worth. The edit bay really had to take their time to uh, really edit this properly. The great thing was is that one of the things that it, it actually made the episode better. Uh, in trimming this because a lot of stuff that was cut was a lot more of Commissioner Hedford's uh, illness, also her uh, displeasure of being taken away from her diplomatic assignment, you know? Considering all the complaining that's already in this episode, I can't imagine more of that would have helped that character anymore, right. you know? Although, when are commissioners in Star Trek not annoying pills? <laughs> <clears throat> that is also very true, very true. We get that guy in uh, the, what is it, Operation Annihilate? Uh. The, the one where, like, the Armageddon scenario one, where the planet is using computers to fight a war. And that guy is totally annoying. And he's, a, he's the same thing. He's a diplomat. He's a commissioner. He's here to open up a port because ships keep, you know, getting running afoul of whatever. Yeah. And Galileo 7? Mm-hmm. That guy who's, uh, you know, constantly on his back. we got to get those supplies to those people. Yep, yep. So, yeah, commissioners are super annoying in Star Trek. Very true. Uh, there was another scene, too, that was cut out where basically Cochran says that he had found some old artifacts lying around. And then Spock says that uh, the companion must be the last survivor of a long-lost dead culture. Kind of a nice little, like, thing, but, you know, definitely not necessary to the story. Right. It's a lot of times, which, you know, it's a lot of times too. I'm sure we've all sat through deleted scenes on DVDs, and sometimes you're like, well, that's interesting, but I'm glad that wasn't in the movie. You know? <laughs> I think there's a certain pod race. <laughs> well, 
but actually, you know, the, another great example of that though is in, in Phantom Menace. There's a scene where you know Anakin beats up a little like Greedo, right? It turns yeah. out it actually is Greedo. So again, another thing that we didn't need. The idea also being like maybe there is a little darkness in him from the start, blah blah blah. But I think that that scene is shot so clumsily and edited so clumsily that you're just like, yeah, we're just fine that that scene's not in the movie. It's that's totally great. Uh, this is also uh, Charles Dunning. This is his first episode, scoring the episode. He goes on to do a whole huge truckload of episodes the rest of this season. We'll keep running into him again. He says, I was working at Columbia Pictures as a contract composer, and Robert Justman had just been uh, one of my fans of my motion picture scores. So he called and asked whether they could borrow me occasionally to do some Star Treks, and uh, he said that he just had a lot of fun doing them. So that's kind of cool. I know you're all wondering about the budget because we love to talk about it on this show. Despite keeping the production down to only six days, uh, Metamorphosis ended up costing $198,493, which is the original budget that they were given, you know, at the beginning of season one. But again, since we've gone down now to $185,000 per episode, getting tougher and tougher to make these episodes so with the first two episodes of the new season already have gone over budget the deficit is now already forty five thousand dollars which is crazy considering we ended the lit i think that we ended season one with only a twenty two thousand dollar overage obviously they made a lot of like cuts here and there along the way but desi lu is not very happy yeah and so we don't have a pilot that we can make a clip show out of <laughs> right this time around and you've got those guys on the Desilu board who think their job is to protect Lucy from going bankrupt making stupid science fiction shows. Or Mission yes. Impossible. That's another one they worried about. Oh, yeah. Well, because that was having just as much problem. There was, there was just as much money on that, on that show as well. Yeah, so you've got these, these group of people thinking we're protecting Lucy by making sure that Mission Impossible and Star Trek don't bankrupt her. So NBC, uh, while they were fine with this episode, they felt that it was a little atypical of the kind of stuff that we, we they wanted, you know, because they kept talking about action adventure and crazy planets and whatnot. So uh, they didn't want to show it too early into season two. They kind of wanted to come out with a bang during season two, which is why this is episode number eight, which aired right after Cat's Paw, which is funny because it shot right after Cat's Paw. So that's really funny that it aired that way as well. The very next episode that we'd see <coughs> will be Journey to Babel with uh, Jane Wyatt. Is that the next episode? Well, it's not the next episode we're doing. No, it's the next episode in the... In the order. In the order that it's shown, yeah. Yeah. Also, another interesting thing about this episode, it received an Emmy for its photographic effects. Wow. Uh, in the May 16th, 1968 issue of Variety, Roddenberry ran a full-page ad, uh, open letter congratulating Joseph Westheimer. Star Trek people will know Joseph Westheimer from his work on this great show, but also is an important member of the Star Wars because he, was, uh, he also did a lot of the special effects for the original Star Wars as well. I'm sure with using a lot of techniques that he learned on this show. Well, uh, all I have to say about this episode is that uh, it uh, was number two in the ratings. You can expect from a Friday night, especially going up against uh, a number one rated show like Gomer Pyle. That was the number one rated show of Friday nights. Which is a so there you go. A spinoff. A spin -off. Of the show. 
right? A very popular show even still. Well, that wraps up this episode of uh, The Brothers Trick About. Uh, anything we didn't get to, sir, that uh, you wanted to talk about? No, I think we, we covered it pretty well. We hit all the stuff, I know. Not a lot to this episode, and yet we somehow still managed to make about an hour out of it. So, great <laughs> for us. We're, so, we're getting better at our job, sir. That's what I mean. <laughs> all right. Well, hey, we're done with this episode. My name is Matt from Austin. Say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. And we will see you all next week for Friday's Child. What's that episode? I don't know. One more thing before we tie it all up for you folks. Uh, No show next week due to the Thanksgiving holiday. So enjoy time with your friends and family. And then we'll be back, I promise, in two weeks with another awesome episode of the show. Thanks.